Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I felt I needed to create a membrane, a membrane that protects me and my loved ones and everything that I care from all this other thing. And that does membrane become a metaphor for this insidious hate and this insidious dislocation of love and accent of love that is manifest with racism. That's Maria Magdalena Campos Pons, Professor of Fine Arts and Cornelius Vanderbilt Endowed Chair of Fine Arts at Vanderbilt University. Born in the province of Matanzas, in the town of La Vega, Cuba, she grew up on a sugar plantation in a family with Nigerian, Hispanic, and Chinese roots. After teaching in Havana at the Instituto Superior de Arte in the 1980s, she emigrated to Boston in 1991 and has since had solo exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art, the Indianapolis Museum of Art, the National Gallery of Canada, and elsewhere. She has participated in the biennials of Venice, Dakar, Johannesburg, in Documenta 14, and in multiple other major exhibitions worldwide, with works by her in over 30 museums, ranging from the Whitney to London's Victoria and Albert Museum. In the fall of 2017, she was appointed to her current role as Vanderbilt's Cornelius Vanderbilt Chair of Fine Arts. Welcome, Magda. I'm so grateful you could make time for us in this challenging moment in American history and to hear from you. Thank you, Max. It's my pleasure to be with you here in this really challenging time. So thank you for having me. A few days ago, at a vigil for Black Lives, a very moving scene unfolded when dozens of Tennessee National Guardsmen laid down their shields in solidarity with protesters. I'm curious, what's the mood in Nashville since the curfews were lifted? Well, that particular gesture was incredible moving and incredible reassuring about the changes and how much this particular region has, you know, moved forward. So I want to make an emphasis about how moving was for me to see that and to witness that level of solidarity and empathy. Because I saw that in the middle of all this very grave situation, that was not only a courageous act, but also a profound expression of empathy. And I took that as a very, very important moment to mark among the many images that we all are accumulating through the country. So, I mean, you know, there was a moment of a lot of disruption in downtown Nashville. And of course, me being a fairly new person in this region, I put in a lot of attention to that. I think that the mood is now a little more calm. I was yesterday walking around my area and I saw a group of protesters passing by me. And they literally were saying hi and, you know, putting the thumbs up and it, that was so beautiful for me because it was this group of people that are not only going to express their view but also reaching out the people that they encounter in the path. So I think that that gesture by the officers create an important stop and think moment for the mood of what is happening specifically here in Nashville. Magda, how are you feeling about the prospects of lasting social change 
in light of the reaction to George Floyd's killing. Yesterday evening, I was speaking with my son, you know, who is a young gentleman, and he was asking me, Mom, what do you think that is happening next? And he was asking me straight, like, you think that this is going to end in a civil war or something of that sort? And I was saying to him, you know, this moment looks very scary, and this moment is very scary. But also, this is a moment of steam that has been collecting for a long time, coming out in a very particular set of circumstances. I believe that we are entering a moment of profound change in the topography of American political landscape. It is a shame that has been built up for many, 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 many years. And I sense this is intuition, but also reading back to history and experience different uprisings and different societal political rearrangement from my own experience that what is happening now is something that was coming. We wouldn't see it, but I particularly always question it. How do we end it choosing one way or another, being by electoral college, an unpopular vote, an individual in the position of Donald Trump to lead the country precisely after doing this extraordinary gesture, an extraordinary expression of political maturity of electing Barack Obama. You know, the most striking image for me in what is happening now and in all the the civil unrest is the composition of the crowds. I was looking at a crowd yesterday and I was sharing with my son, look at how many white people Look at how many brown people. Look how many <laughs> black people. These are not the Selma march. These are an incredible outpour of white people in the street. And I think that that is a mood, a perception by measure of solidarity of white America that for the survival of this country and for the sustain of whatever that we call America, we need a different understanding and a different embracing of others, <laughs> melatonin <laughs> colors that exist in the country. Among the disturbance, among the pain that we are going through, among the despair that we are going through, is a very positive sign. And you know, Max, I, I am an optimist. And I always try to see what is the light, what is the point of brilliance, what is the shining scene among all the other confusing elements. And for me, that is the shining point. That is the indicator that the level of engagement, the level of response of younger people, of people of all way of life coming together in many ways, when I am thinking about what we're seeing now as the protest and the unrest, I connect that very, very clearly to the pandemic. These are very unique set of circumstances in which these two seem just oppose. The largest and more demanding moment of health, scare of the century for the country 
juxtapose with this absolutely outrageous public lynching of George Floyd. Everybody was at home. The majority of our population was in this lockdown quarantine situation. Children from the university, young males and women from the university back home with their parents, the little kids back home with their parents, the parents alone in their homes. I mean, we were in the habitat most of the time looking the news, looking the television for what is happening, what is transpired with this virus that was wrecking work in all of us. And suddenly, we are all bear witness of this horrendous crime. You're absolutely right, Magda. It was impossible to avoid seeing that clip and to avoid understanding its impact since everyone was locked at home. Your artwork has long mixed performance, photography, and drawing, and addressed displacement rituals associated with social hierarchies, and speaking of the pandemic, the politicizing of nature and of the human body, along with so many other themes. Can you give us a sense of how your African and Cuban roots are adapting to the soil of Tennessee? Hmm. <laughs> I, that is, a, you know, I get shields. Uh, I have shields when you ask me that question. And as I have chills, and when I have seen some image, I, I don't remember crying so profusely and no one able to stop me from sobering as when I saw that video. And <laughs> I, got, I got short of air for a second because this is emotional. And um, when I saw what in the world are the coordinates that send you to be in Tennessee, in this state, in this region, with such a profound market, a history of his relations with the black body, his punishment of it, and his attempt to do good after so much abuse. I, it crossed my mind, Martin Luther King, Memphis was in my mind. I have such level of feelings uh, jumping and coming in top of me. And then I saw that I believe that once always find oneself in the place that one should be in a particular moment. And, and I have come to believe that our own displacement and our own geographic entanglements, specifically for the history of the black body, come to me a very indeed mark in history and the future. I cannot tell you with clear definition how do I think that is for me to be here. But I am thinking very, very profoundly that it's very important that I am here, that 
I am gathering information. I am gathering energy. That I am summoning forces within myself and within the history of what my body recalibrate as an African American, African from the diaspora, Afro-Cuban woman. I don't take this as a casualty. I think that this, I was meant to be here. I was meant to be here and not to be here when I was 20. Being here when I passed my 20, good long ago. And that is a moment of a thinking, it's a moment of recalibrating. I think that the beauty of not being 20s <laughs> or the despair of not being 20 is that you, you could take a moment of distance just seeing the time that has passed and seeing what you have witnessed and accumulated in your body, in your soul, as marking a scarf. You know, I think we black bodies never stop getting scarifications. There are gestures and actions that indeed mark us in a way that is very hard to erase. And I feel I have been trying to not only becoming part of the texture of what is being here in Tennessee and what is being in Nashville, but to trying to educate myself and re-educating myself to understand the proximities and the difference of what it means to born in Cuba and what it means to become an adult woman and a, almost a senior. <laughs> Not quite yet. <laughs> in Tennessee, I don't know, Max, how to emphasize for you how meaningful and how complex it is for me to be here. Uh, and since you asked me the question, you know, I was invited to come to Vanderbilt almost 13 years ago. It was 2011 that I got the invitation to teach here. And it took me seven years to actually make that decision and come here. And it was seven years about different acquaintances and people and my own saying, why Tennessee? Among some of the best decisions that I have took in the last few years of my life is actually coming to Tennessee. And I remember Barack Obama saying one moment, I don't remember the sad moment, but he said, we need more people thinking in the direction of progress and in the direction of democracy and in the direction of social engagement of solidarity. I am saying a lot of things that Obama didn't say, but I am enhancing his call for people like me to come to this part of the country. When I came here, I was in a need to really reacquaint myself with many things. And I am still in the process of doing that. But I have found here a missing, a missing group of people who embrace me and become brothers and sisters in a many, many, many beautiful way. So it is very meaningful and significant for me it would be another question eventually in the future to know what the Tennesseans think about. I am grateful that I am here and I take in the opportunity of being here with a lot of sense of responsibility 
and with a lot of sense of doing what I have done all my life, I seen the best manage to bring people together in a past and in a way that is of healing and to finding the common threads. And what I say, the beauty in their difference, but the strength of their similarities, because that is what it matters and that is what it will make in the long run for this nation, the difference. So Magda, there is a stage for you in the South where you are clearly having an impact on your students and your community and the region. But you also occupy another stage, which is global, and it's in the museum world. Museums have long been preserves of wealth and power and privilege, and you've challenged dozens of museums to confront the status quo in ways that have been generous and gracious. I'm hoping you would share today your thinking about how a newly awakened art world should confront racial injustice. Well, thank you for acknowledging that I have been <laughs> challenging museums. And I want to say to you, thank you for trusting me and giving me the opportunity to challenge you. <laughs> you were the museum, museum director. I have hope. I call in this month the month of awakening in the year of the pandemic. That's what I am calling this period the month of the awakening. And I think that this is true, too, for the museums. But there is a museum in Boston who was the very first who was starting a conversation to celebrate and to give it a physical space for Black artists, which is called the National African Museum of Art in Rosbury, Walnut Street, Rosbury, Massachusetts. For Boston to show real engagement to inclusion, it would be, let's make that museum a world quality space and place in the middle of an historical black neighborhood in Boston. Why not? What it have taken more than at least in my present 30 years for this to happen and hasn't happened yet. Boston is an extraordinarily rich city. Why an African-American museum is lagging funds and present within the city. Those for me are very simple, simple expression of when justice is no balance. That imbalance is, of course, in many American cities. And I'm curious, Magda, when museums start to reopen across the United States, what would you hope for that is different from before? whether it's hiring practices or admissions policies, programming, board composition, or any other facet of their activities. One thing that has happened as, as we enter the pandemic, we have seen a positive rearrangement of staff in the museums. We have been seeing an increasing number of hiring curators, directors of different ethnicity and different and inclusion in that realm. I think this has been a positive move. I am still thinking that museums need to open in more active way to communities. I could think of museums getting engaged with educational programs that take a more profound look about what happened in early education and middle education in this country. 
especially high school, I could imagine entire programs of internship and assistantship and visiting artists. I could think of that as a democratic, expansive way of thinking in how curators, museum directors could be part of a more large, enriching way to incorporate their knowledge into visual literacy. I am thinking that in question of acquisitions, museum is still far behind in inclusion and equality in big, big ways. Diversity in the museum is still in the 1%. I could give you a list, which I would not do, would tell you who are the lucky ones and how so many important artists of colors, minorities, are overseen because it's this assumption that you celebrated too that implies that you have already uh, fixed the deficiency of inclusion. And I think that that is a terrible and a very, very important thing that the museum would need to face. This is true for every large museum in America. I have seen with a sense of a hope and enthusiasm for instance, what is happening here in the South? I am excited to see what Christopher Bridget is doing in both collection, expansion of program, inclusion of curatorial staff. And I need to say to you, when I first read about that museum coming from Walmart, of what Walmart was doing and represented, I have a little grain of salt in it. And I celebrate what this institution is doing. I am enthusiastic and seeing the sort of desire for a unity and cooperation that is happening in other institutions here, from the New Orleans Biennials to the three-star triennial that is going to happen in Tennessee, to what is happening in the south of Florida with not only market, our basset, and so on, but also with the museum programming. So I am seeing a renewal and an incredible spirited energy that is coming from the South, that is coming from this region, injecting new energy, a new way of seeing what is an inclusive and participatory way to build museum agency and to build inclusion of community. So I am very excited about what is happening in the South from this particular viewpoint. We have started to think about entities and ideas traveling to the global south. So this is very important and valuable, and I think a new wave of idea and thinking that is taking hold here. And it will reverberate eventually with the rest of the country. It's interesting to think of the American South as an extension of the global South in contrast to a world you were in in Boston. Now, Magda, you often use art as a way of healing the viewer. Is it too early for you to tell us a little bit about what you are thinking of now, what kind of healing you may be moved to provide through your art? Of course, of course. Of course. As you know, I am the kind of maker who 
required a little bit of time to get into her shell and then respond. I found this particular period as all of us being back to our shell, forced by the circumstances. And it's interesting that you asked me that question. I, am, I have been working in numerous pieces, but I finished a proposal of a large sculptural piece, and it's fundamentally a shell, the, the embodiment of the habitat uh, within yourself that need to take protection once because the imaginary metaphorical aspect of COVID-19, which was this thing, this entity that bring malady that is everywhere all the time, and we cannot see it, we cannot smell it, we cannot hear it. You know, all this sensorial aspect of being alert when you are in danger, that it was literally muted by this disease and by this virus. And as a woman who does performance art, this become very vivid to me. I felt I needed to create a membrane, a membrane that protect me and my loved ones and everything that I care from all this other thing. And that does membrane become a metaphor for this insidious hate and this insidious dislocation of love and accent of love that is manifest with racism, that is manifest with bigotry. You need to create a membrane, some sort of viscosity who protect you from being contaminated from that. And with that, you need to, to keep your soul pure, to keep yourself untouched and able to love with purity again, to love even your enemy, because you know that love will prevail. You know, how do you build love out of hate? How do you build love out of bigotry? How do you still believe it that yes, love could come when you see so much hate naked? Naked. So again, I come back to the juxtaposition of these two scenes. Pandemic and pandemic of race, pandemic of hate, pandemic of accent of love in a way. And, and I am working on that. Of course, I'm making a drawing a day. I'm making a writing a day. And I'm going, to, I'm going to find some of my writing a day. And I'm going to read for you what I wrote yesterday. And it's all full of imperfections. And I, I, I write in English, which is not my first language. So yesterday I say, you see the Mississippi River snailing down to the Gulf. Sometimes, the water's mood is calm. But there comes the occasion in which the pounding rain expands the river basin. It reaches out once and reaches out twice and reaches out thrice and reaches out four and reaches out five. <laughs> 
and reached out six. And he tried to rearrange his spurs at seven and reached out at eight and called the mother Nile River, Mama, Mama, at eight minutes and 45 seconds exact. Heavy stream come down and silent all. Stop reaching out at nine. He recalled the Amazon, a sister, brother, a stream, and take another reach out at 10. I'm pushing in, out, all at last 11 times the final gasp. A breath. The rivers looks calm just in the surface. Below is the heat gathering steam and pressure, ready to a streamline force like a gazed breath. Oshun is keeping her kitchen hot, bracing fire for when Ogun may return again. What a wonderful journey that was. Thank you, Magda. You're welcome. We've been speaking today with Maria Magdalena Campos Pons, Professor of Fine Arts and Cornelius Vanderbilt Endowed Chair of Fine Arts at Vanderbilt University. Thank you, Magda. Thank you, Max. It was my pleasure to speak with you. Take care. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.